Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We are nearing the end of the Gospel of Matthew with chapter 27 today, the account of the crucifixion and the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's our text. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, This truly was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Obviously, our focus today is on Jesus Christ and him crucified, his death, his blood shed for us that washes away all of our sins. This is something we talk about every week together as Christians. It's something that in our homes at Forgiveness, we can talk about that every day together as his people. Sermons should not go by where we do not talk about the death of Jesus Christ. And arguably also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For if he stays in the tomb, what good is that to any of us? 
1 Corinthians 15. So, in the morning, a reminder that the trial happened in the middle of the night, which is not their custom, shouldn't have, they delivered Jesus to Pilate. Now, Pilate is a Roman governor. He served from roughly 26 to 36 AD as the governor over the region here in Judea that this all is going on. He is recalled in 36 AD, roughly, by the Roman Emperor Tiberius for having attacked a group of Samaritans by Mount Gerizim. Tradition holds that the men were armed, but that when they complained about the attack to another local governor, the governor of Syria, that they claimed that they were unarmed, that they were innocent. And so he was to be brought back to Rome to face trial and to see what outcome came of it. However, before he made it back to Rome, Tiberius dies. I should say before he makes it to trial. Maybe he was already in Rome, but the trial doesn't take place yet. The emperor dies, and we never hear of it again. There are some who believe that Pilate was cleared and that he simply went on to serve somewhere else in the empire after 10 years in one place. There are others who believe that he retired in shame. The only really truly recorded note that we have historically that I'm aware of comes in the 4th century from Eusebius, who claims that at that time, at his time, it was the tradition of the church that Pilate, in his shame, committed suicide. But that is not, even Eusebius claims, there is no supporting evidence that he could find for that claim even at his time, and we haven't found any either. So it's really hard to know what becomes of Pontius Pilate. But we know him as Christians. We speak his name each week when we speak the creed together as God's people. So Judas, and this is where I'm going to actually have your family focus for your conversations today. What happens when Judas recognizes Jesus is condemned to death? I mentioned this a couple of days ago when we talked about the betrayal. He doesn't seem to have recognized the depths of what he was doing. He thinks Jesus is arrested, Jesus is out of the way. When he recognizes they're going to kill him, I don't like that ESV goes with he changes his mind here. He repents. He repents. Now the family conversation is, what's wrong with his repentance? When we repent of our sins, we are turning away from our sin, we're turning to something else. Where does he turn? He turns to the guys that betrayed Jesus in the first place, to the ones who paid him the money in order to capture, arrest, and eventually kill Jesus. These are not faithful men. How different might Judas's outcome have been if he had turned to Peter or if he had turned and went and found Jesus? He repented. He turned. He just turned the wrong way. And so their response, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Let's handle this one on two layers as well. And, and a family conversation again. How would you feel if your pastor said that to you when you came confessing your sin seeking forgiveness? How would you feel to have that forgiveness rejected? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Can we? 
Can we handle our sin ourselves? The answer to that is no. No, we desperately need Christ's forgiveness. We need that sin taken away from us, which it is by Christ's death on the cross, by his blood shed for us. And that word then is shared with you again and again and again by a faithful pastor. And his body and blood are placed on your lips by that shepherd in that place that the Lord has put there for you. This is a tragic response to a repentant sinner. What is that to us? You you were the intermediary. You were the priest, the intercessor between God and men. What's going on? You failed. You have failed your duty. You've neglected the church. See to it yourself. And so Judas does. He handles his sin the only way that sin can be handled by man. He dies. It's a dark moment indeed. Indeed. In all angles. They agree that because the money is covered in blood from having been used to arrange the death of a man, Jesus, they can't put it in the temple treasury. It's not good for the Lord. So instead they use it to buy a field. And Matthew points out this fulfills, this is number 14, I think, in the book, uh, from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 seems to be the citation, but Matthew splices in some no- information from Jeremiah 19, verse 11, as well as 32, verses 6 through 11. So Jesus comes before Pilate. Pilate questions him, and he doesn't respond to any of it. Not a single charge, so the governor was greatly amazed. I mean, imagine that. Imagine a judge today having a, a guilty man or an innocent man, either one, brought before him, charges are read off, the guy just stands there. Do you have anything to say for yourself? He just stands there, says nothing. Which one of us, given the opportunity, wouldn't go on and on rambling, trying to defend ourselves? And Jesus sits there, as Isaiah 53 declares that he would, silent before his shearers, like a lamb. I mentioned yesterday, it's fantastic to read Yesterday and today, Isaiah 52 and 53, uh, verses 13 of 52 through verse 12 of 53, but also Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22 today and see just how fitting it is to the crucifixion. I'm going to come back to that point, uh, but certainly here. Crowd chooses Barabbas. Pilate apparently has this tradition where every year at their Passover feast, this week-long celebration of pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Jews, he will release one of their prisoners. Pardon. Barabbas is an insurrectionist. We don't learn that here in Matthew, but we learn it elsewhere in the Gospels. So the fact that they're all afraid of riots, even Pilate gives in to the crucifixion because he fears the riot that he sees starting to begin, and he releases a guy who starts riots. It's crazy. Irony of that. They demand Barabbas' release when he gives them the opportunity. So he then asks what should be done with Jesus, and they say, let him be crucified. When he pushes, why, what evil has he done? They shout all the more, let him be crucified. Hopefully that reminds you of chapter 20. The blind men who were shouting out, son of David, have mercy on us. And when the crowd tried to silence them, they shouted out all the more, son of David, have mercy on us. 
See the parallel? And yet it's the opposite. Instead of crying to Jesus for salvation, they cry to Jesus for his death. I don't want to skip over the wife entirely here. She's only mentioned here and not by name. Have nothing to do with the righteous man. I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. We don't know much here at all. Um, Was that dream from the Lord? Was that dream from the devil? Hard to say. Um, Does this mean that she's faithful or not? Hard to say. I, I use this because I wanted to point out how the church has treated these two people historically. That his wife has been viewed as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church as well as the Oriental Orthodox Church. And that Pilate has been viewed as a saint by the Ethiopian Church as well as the Coptic Church. I don't think we can answer for either of them, historically speaking, but it would be fantastic to see one or both of them in paradise if if they are there someday, even if it is the one who killed Christ, right, uh, to be there. We'll see. So Pilate washes his hands of this man's blood. He gives in. He saw that a riot was beginning. He doesn't want to get in trouble, doesn't want to lose his post. A similar reason that costs him his post seven, eight, nine years later. Again, with that Samaritan revolt that we talked about before. I am innocent of this man's blood. Now, honestly, that excuse does nothing. He's still the commander. He still gives the order. It's by his order that Christ is executed, so he's not innocent of it. However, the blood shed on the cross covers his sin too. That's something we can acknowledge. Their response is the greatest irony in all of Scripture. His blood be on us and on our children. So they're claiming the guilt. Sure, we'll be responsible for it. We don't care. Kill him. But it's by his death, indeed, his blood is on them, and it is on their children. Their sins have been forgiven. And so Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, and it sounds very similar to this, where he's going to end up telling the Jews that day that he speaks to that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Another nice parallel to make outside of this chapter. So they take him, the soldiers do, to the governor's headquarters, which appears to be, uh, the word in Greek, a reference to his official residence in the area, And they gather the whole battalion, which is a Roman cohort, 600 men. 600 men to punish the one. Again, Pilate, why? What evil has he done? 600 of them. They mock him as a king. So they put a scarlet robe on him. So scarlet, just red, purple, those kinds of dyes, expensive to get your hands on. So reserved for luxury or royalty. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. Part of the mockery. So they've dressed him in royal garb and put a crown on his head. The thorns that pierced his brow. They give him a reed in his hand, a symbol of power for the king, his authority. And they mockingly bow down before him. But it's all a sham. They pretend to view him as a king and make fun of him without even realizing he actually is their king. And so they return his clothing to him after stripping him beating him, spitting on him, and so forth. They take him to crucify him. They're going to grab uh, Simon, man of Cyrene, which is a city by the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa, about 500 miles west of the Nile River. 
and they force him to carry the cross. In other words, as Jesus bleeds, sheds his blood for us already, that both God and man walk through the blood of the cross. Both God and man usher in this new covenant that Jesus is making with us. Covenants are cut in blood, and when they're sealed, whoever it is that is making it, the two parties walk through the blood together, and so these two men are doing here, Jesus and Simon. They come to Golgotha, place of a skull. Could be named that because it's the execution spot. It could actually be a hill that looks kind of like a skull. We don't really know. History doesn't record that detail for us. He refuses to drink the wine they offer. Uh, his last supper promised that he wouldn't drink it again until they came into the kingdom of God together. They divide his garments by casting lots. Again, that's a detail you'll see specifically if you read through Psalm 22. I encourage you to do that today. They put the sign over his head, which is the charge against him, that he's the king of the Jews. Two robbers crucified with him, one on the left and one on the right. We even see in verse 44 that they revile him together. That's opposite of what we normally think. Luke records that one of them has faith. Imagine the crucifixion day, though, that they are crucified together in the morning around 9 a.m., and that these men, as they hang there, making fun of him in the morning, by afternoon one of them has come to repent. That time in the presence of God, hearing whatever it is Jesus has proclaimed, seeing the disciples or the women or whoever and how they gather, how he's mocked, how he's loved, one of the men is brought to repentance in that time on the cross. And he hears those famous words, Truly I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. The crowds mock him, claiming that if he is the Son of God, he should come down, claiming that if he does come down, they'll believe in him, and so forth. And none of this is true. Many have seen his miracles and did not believe. They wouldn't believe if he came down now. And if he came down now, it would defeat his entire purpose of going there in the first place, which is to die to forgive our sins. And so he remains. Now there's darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth, that is from noon until 3 p.m., and this should not be viewed as like a dark, cloudy day. This is a supernatural kind of darkness, like to Exodus chapter 10's ninth plague, the darkness that was so thick they couldn't see the hand in front of their face. Why? Creation groans the death of its creator. In this moment, God is dying. God is dying. Even creation recognizes this. And so he cries out, and this is why, again, I encourage you to read Psalm 22 today. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the title of Psalm 22. Just as today we know most of our hymns by their first line, that's their title, they didn't have them numbered necessarily like we do now in the Old Testament. They knew them by their titles, their first lines. So Jesus, very specifically, is calling attention on the cross to a psalm, a hymn of the church in which it was prophesied about his cross, his death, his crucifixion for the people. So those who remember it, I mean, imagine somebody standing there that day and carrying on singing, whether it's quietly to themselves or just thinking it in their mind. Some mistakenly think he's calling Elijah. You can see the similarity, Eli, with Elijah. Um, Eli is my God. Elijah, my God is Yahweh. I mean, that's what his name means. The first syllable of Yahweh is the second part of his name. 
Jesus cries out and yields up his spirit, the moment of his death. And as that happens, as our Savior dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. This is crucial and often overlooked, I think, by most Christians, one of the most important moments in history, and we don't even recognize it. The temple curtain's purpose was to separate God's holiness from our sin. That is, God promised to dwell in the midst of his people, but he shields us from his throne, that we cannot accidentally come into his presence because with our sin, we would die. He would strike us down. And yet, here, at the death of Christ, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, from God to man, because we can now be in the presence of God and live, because our sin is forgiven, because we are covered in the blood of Christ, we are clothed in the robe of his righteousness, our sin is gone. Truly, your sin is gone, forgiven, taken away from you. Christ took it to the cross and he died for it. Those nails pounded through his flesh so that they don't have to go through yours. Thanks be to God. On the last day, we can stand in his presence and live. We are in his presence even now. All right. Also at the death of Jesus, earthquake, tombs broke open. A couple days later, those people rise from the dead and start walking around again. That's incredible too, but you don't hear anything more about it in scripture. And the centurion comes to faith acknowledges this was the Son of God because of all that he has seen take place that day. Again, just like that thief on the cross beside him. Many were there, women who had followed him all the way from Galilee, including a couple of Marys. Could be seven or eight different Marys in the New Testament. It's a pretty common name. Now we get Joseph of Arimathea, who comes, and he is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's one of the Sanhedrin probably a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but we don't ever have it recorded for sure one way or the other in Scripture, but those men were the ones commonly on the council. He asks for Jesus' body. Uh, In just a couple of hours, the sun goes down, that starts the Sabbath day. And so he asks that Jesus' body be given to him, that he may bury it before it's time. And he does. The shroud that's mentioned here, some believe to be something called the Shroud of Turin, T-U-R-I-N. I don't know if there's any validity to that Shroud of Turin or not. There have been a lot of relics throughout the ages of the church. Some of them probably were real things. Um, others often just made up. And it could be made up. It could be real. I don't know. But it doesn't matter, ultimately. Um, we have Christ, and he lives, and he lives for you and he lives for me. If we have it, cool. If we don't have it, it doesn't make a difference. He still died, and he still rose. It's a historical reality that is good for all of us. The last note we get is that these men, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they finally remember Jesus saying he was going to rise from the dead, and they warn Pilate, because if he does, it will be worse than the first deception. That he claimed to be the son of God in the first place is bad enough. If he actually disappears, people will really think he is. So they want a guard. And they get it. Although it's not Pilate's. Pilate tells them to use their own men to take care of it. And so they do. They seal the tomb. They set the guard. And we'll come back to learn more about that tomorrow.